Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I Good morning, this is Annie for Showreel on 3CR, our look at uh, the Australian film industry. And today we're going to feature a film that's going to be on at Nova starting on February the 7th. It's called Winter at Westbeth. Winter at Westbeth. It's an artist residence in uh, New York. And the film is made by Rowan Spong, who uh, did it all by himself, which is pretty extraordinary. So uh, coming up is my chat with Rowan Spong. Now I'm here today talking to Rowan Spong. Spong? That's right, Spong. Yeah. Fantastic I'm surname. S- I'm still amused by it all these years later. Is it a real name? You, you <laughs> no, it's do a it. real one. I it's, didn't. I didn't invent it. It's a beautiful name. Yeah, there's a Bishop Spong, and and I don't think I'm like related to him in the sense that uh, like he's not in our family tree or anything, but he looks like a Spong. Yeah, <laughs> he looks like another Spong. Yeah, yeah, cool. Anyway, the film that we're talking about is Winter at Westbeth. Now, you're an Australian filmmaker. It's a documentary, but it's set in a fantastic uh, artist residence in in New York. Yes, that's right. So I'm I'm born in Australia and I, and I live in Melbourne. Uh, and I'd previously made a film called All the Way Through Evening, which was also set in New York. And one of the main characters in that, or the main character in that, Mimi Stern-Wolf, after we'd completed the film, uh, took me a, a, to, sort of on a tour of, of the lower west uh, sort of side of Manhattan and we stumbled into Westbeth on a winter's afternoon and she was insistent that we went in because it was beginning to snow and they had a long warm bar heater that you could sit on to warm your bottom mm-hmm. and I was keen to have my bottom warmed. Fantastic and and the thing about it is is that it's uh, uh, used to be the Bell Company building that has was given over to artist residency for artists so that they could have rent-controlled apartments. So it's public housing. Yeah, effectively. So originally it was Bell Labs. They invented the condenser microphone, um, an early version of the telephone, television transmission, vacuum cleaners. It's said that some of the science behind the atomic bomb occurred in that building. Uh, And later in the 60s, the building was abandoned and it was... It was repurposed as artists' housing that was rent-controlled. And so a lot of artists moved in uh, in 1970, and many of them did not leave. It became what's been dubbed a naturally occurring retirement community. It's a fantastic place. It really is instructive to an Australian viewer to think what could happen 
if people put their mind to it because the apartments are fantastic and the people are fantastic. And that's what, oh, before we go on, that picture of the train going through the building, archival footage. There's a lot of archival footage to do with the building as it, as it was Bell Labs, um, not so much when it was repurposed as, as Westbeth. Uh, yeah, but so so the Highline Subway, which is now sort of, I guess, a tourist hotspot in New York, people tend to walk along it. It gives great views of the cities. It used to run through through the bottom of Westbeth, so a train used to run through the middle of the building. But uh, that line has sort of been discontinued, and, and as I say, it's now sort of like a tourist walking spot. It's fantastic. I was really impressed. I, I almost fell off the chair when I saw that picture. Uh, it, but the, it, you, what this film really is about, it's not just about how fantastic public housing can be, but it's also actually about it being a bastion for artists. And it's, the, and it, it's also about art and age, isn't it? Absolutely. So the, the artists in the film are aged between 75 and 96, uh, so we have Dudley Williams, who's a, a, a very iconic contemporary dancer of Elvin Ailey and Martha Graham fame. Uh, we have uh, Ilsa Gilbert, who's 81, and she's a poet and a playwright. And then Edith Steffen, who's 95, turning 96, as the film sort of greets her. And she had been a dancer during a period known as The Happening, and now she is a filmmaker. She taught herself filmmaking in her early 90s. So it's uh, a story, I guess, about what happens to these characters over the course of one year. It's a documentary about a year in their lives. Um, but it, I guess it, t- it touches on or it speaks to, uh, you know, why it is we make art um, and, and what it is that the art of older people has to tell us about their lives. I think it was really extraordinary because, I mean, for example, let's go to Dudley. They, he actually... I mean, it's a very physical thing to be 75 and a dancer, but what he's done is now contributing by being a dance teacher. And it's obvious that his, uh, not just his knowledge, but his personality and the way he looks at the the world and the way he, the politics of his life transfers to the groups of young people that are dancing and learning from him. Absolutely. So he... The dance that he was trained or the technique that he was trained was Martha Graham's technique and it was Martha Graham who, who trained him. Uh, and he continues to, to teach young students this Martha Graham technique. Um, and, and during the course of the film, he you know, he recalls his sort of early years dancing with Martha Graham during kind of, you know, the height of the civil rights movement in the late 50s and early 60s in America. Um, and he talks about, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, the significance of, of being uh, a dancer of colour on stage uh, during that period of time when, when uh, you know, he couldn't use the same washroom as everybody else. Uh, you know, he, there are instances where, you know, he would go into, like, a, a public venue uh, and they would perform and, and the dancers would be kept sort of backstage until the public had left the building so that... Um, you know, heaven forbid any any white patrons of the theatre bump into, um, yeah, an African American dancer. So his artistic contrib- uh, you know contribution is incredibly significant. He's a, he's an incredible dancer. He's you know he's really an icon of of the last century's you know dance in America. Um, but you know he's also able to speak to a time and a place historically. Yeah, because he says that he has two op- op- options, either to go continue. What does he say? He says, I, I could either go to Martha Graham's 
company or I could continue in um, Elvin's company. In Martha's company, I'm a Greek god. And in Elvin's company, I'm a black man, black dancer with problems. And, On stage. And I'm a person. And I'm a person, yeah. Yeah, so I decided to go with Elvin. <laughs> yeah, and, and and he says he thinks he made the right decision and, and I would I would say so too. Yeah. Um, you but, know, some of the dancing that, that he did with Elvin Ailey, I mean, there were significant solos that he himself originated, but, you know, Elvin Ailey has, uh, you know, a very long... Uh, you know, dance history, and there are these seminal pieces like Revelations, and, and Dudley was very much involved in in dancing in those for you know over thirty years. Uh, there's a series of fabulous uh, black and white shots to photos. You insert those beautifully. There's a treasure chest of archive in the film. There's there's a lot of photos of, of Dudley during that period, but there's also some really great footage of Edith Steffen, sort of in the sixties out in, in the garden having a happening yeah. uh, uh, and that sort of avant-garde or, or um, wildly improvised dance and movement sort of that came about in the 50s and 60s. How did here. you choose your, your characters? Because they are characters. Sure. Um, I chose them for different reasons. So Ilsa Gilbert was literally the first person I'd met from Westbeth and I think when you're making a documentary, part of what you're chasing is a sense of spontaneity and I loved the idea that quite literally the first person who I met from the building would be the person who would navigate me through it's the ca- building. It's called accidents, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, happy that, ac- the accidents. Be- the best thing. The serendipity of it, yeah. And and her writing's wonderful. Her writing certainly speaks to what it means to get older um, and, uh, and why we make art and those sorts of questions. And it's very easy to understand. I think sometimes when people read poetry, uh, you know, you have to sort of sit and think about it. Her writing is very, very direct. So that's partially why I chose her. Um, and then Edith Stefan, I mean, visually she's a very dynamic character with her orange hair and her green eye shadow and, you know, let's go into the garden and have a happening. You know, I, I hope at 96 I'm sitting in an armchair. Oh, she's <laughs> so, she's so, so unfragile. Completely, yeah. She's, she's a very, very brave, dynamic kind of character on screen. Uh, and with Dudley Williams, I mean, lots of people in the building knew that Dudley Williams lived there and he had been quite a famous dancer. Uh, and so I was curious about why it was he was a little bit reclusive, why it was his neighbours thought that he lived there but weren't sure, people hadn't seen him for a while, uh, he was keeping himself to himself. Uh, and then when I learn about his dance history, I thought, well, that's there's an interesting conflict in this story because he's no longer dancing professionally on stage. He's teaching. Uh, how does he feel about that? What does he miss about dancing on stage? Uh, and of but course, also he's probably shy. He's a, he's a shy. Oh, he's yeah, a dancer, he's, not he's a, a dancer. talker. Absolutely. So he's used to communicating, you know, with his physicality more so than I guess verbally. And he was keen to be filmed. He was keen to participate, but initially. He sort of said, I want to hold off on doing the interviews. So I filmed him doing, I mean, we call it B-roll. I filmed, I filmed his activities more so than filming, uh, you know, the interviews with him. And later, I guess, you know, we, we uh, you know, trust developed between us and he realized that I was interested in a bigger story than just three neat sound bites. And so we sort of sat down. Because you are a white boy and you're from Australia. Totally, totally. All of this, all of this needs to be owned. Look, I mean... Um, people ask me, you know, do you, do you think that that kind of, uh, you know, kind of creates barriers or, or builds walls? And sometimes it does, but sometimes I think in a weird way it works in my favour because there's nothing more 
nonsensical than, you know, this strange swashbuckling Australian young man rocking up to your door and knocking on your door and being like, oh, get I'm just here to make a movie. Would you want to be in it? You know, and that's that's pretty much who I am and what I'm doing. So I think in a weird way, a lot of New Yorkers don't, particularly in that vintage, don't come in contact with Australians day to day. So I, I guess, um, you know, the, the, it puts... It makes people curious about participating, absolutely. And they, they you know, they, they always do their research. They go back and they watch my previous films and see what I'm all about. So uh, That you're competent. <laughs> that I can bluff competence, absolutely. My name's Molly Reynolds and I make documentaries like Another Country and I support 3CR because... It is a radio station that once you start listening to, you can't stop. You're on 3CR on Showreel with Annie and uh, we're talking to director, filmmaker Rowan Spong about his most recent film, Winter at Westbeth, which is all about age and art or art and ageing, <laughs> whichever you prefer. Well, <laughs> you are an experienced filmmaker. This is your third film, third feature, feature, yeah. feature film, which is... Uh, and uh, and I noticed that you got uh, funding from Screen Australia and Film Victoria. So it was a was it a long period that you were de- developing this? Um, the development of it was quite a while, and then the the post production was quite a while. But in terms of the filming, it was sort of five trips back and forth to New York, and I would sort of come back and we, we would work in the edit suite. I worked with two wonderful editors, Cindy Clarkson and Peter Caradis, on this film. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah he's good. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. And Cindy's amazing. Cindy Cindy edits with from the heart um, and she really sort of fell in love with these characters and found these little sort of nuggets of um, scenes and moments that perhaps maybe other editors might not have used. Uh, she's How a, much footage did you have? I would say, oh, that's a really hard question. Um, hard hours. drives and hard drives. It would it would have been days. Days yeah. and hours, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But, but you'd already divided it up into activity shots. That's one of the things I was going to uh, congratulate. I really liked the way you uh, put the people in their places. That that we, we discover people in their own surroundings. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of those sort of documentaries where people are sort of situated against a black wall or those kind of, you know, marbled And they're on the couch and you're talking to them all the time. Yeah, no, I, I like kind of following people around and discovering their places. I think the things that people have in their home tell you a lot about the people that they are, the, the, the manner in which they move through the world. Do they take the bus? Do they walk? What do they carry? All that sort of thing. You know, it's all it, it all builds character and it all helps the audience understand and triangulate this who this human being is and, and hopefully to empathise with them. So did you start with the idea that you wanted to talk about age and art through these characters? Or uh, what I noticed is that over time the people were leading you into conversational elements. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's how the so, film felt anyway. Um, I've, I'm very kind of open-ended in my approach to filmmaking. So, um, you know, in terms of this this film, I knew I wanted to set the film at Westbeth and I knew that it was going to be an ensemble film. There was talk for a while about whether it would be, you know, two characters, three characters, five characters. Um, but once I sort of had those three and they felt like a good fit, it was really about sort of just seeing what happened to them over the course of the year. And But you did want to talk to some older artists. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Westbeth is that the median age of people who live at Westbeth is kind of in the mid-60s or over. Right. And look, I'm 35. I'm I'm... Uh, you know, and all this arts funding is just being cut in this country. So I, I myself am conscious of the fact that 
you know, I'm, I'm, you know, putting all my own chips on red by continuing to do this rather than to sort of retrain as somebody or something else. And I was curious about, you know, what would happen if I continued down this path of making films. Well, we need public housing, don't we? <laughs> oh, well, first of all, we need public housing. You know, second, secondly, we, we know, you know, we need to restore our arts funding. All of these things are, are concerns to me. But I also think, um, you know, as a society, we tend not to give the elderly a lot of time and we tend not to take an interest in the art that they make. I think we tend to sort of push it to one side and say, oh, that's a hobby and you're doing that because you have time to fill. But often I think the art of the elderly tells us a lot about not just, you know, the world in which they live now, but the sort of historical context where they've come from and what, you know, the, the battles they've fought and the things they've seen and experienced. Just as an aside, I actually think that uh, very similar uh, people having babies, it sounds like a funny correlation, but people having babies and uh, getting older are two areas that society barely has proper conversations about. Oh, absolutely, yeah. These things sort like of happen really invisibly. Happen. Yeah. Things that are really happening to people. And this is film helps to communicate some of those ideas. I find that really fascinating. Oh, thank you. That's, that's, that's I guess, the, the aim. You know, hopefully people sit down and, and, and enjoy it. You know, there's funny parts. There's some incredibly, you know, tragic and sad stuff that happens in the film. But um, some really laugh-out-loud funny moments. So hopefully it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a journey where people sort of empathise with other human beings and, and human beings who t- don't tend to get a lot of screen time. That's exactly right. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about uh, how, why it was possible for you to get funding when you're telling an American story. Sure. So um, I guess, you know, my previous film was set in New York and it had done well at festivals and it opened theatrically in Australia and it had, it had done well um, sort of at the cinema. It was a um, part, part of, I guess, the sales pitch so to speak to to screen australian film victoria was the fact that even though it's a new york story uh the majority in fact all of the the post-production and the sort of production element happened in australia so i'm literally a one-man band i sort of carry a tripod a camera sound recording equipment and so forth was it only you You yeah yeah you didn't have anybody with no sound recorders no so there there's a couple of dance sequences in the film and there's a second camera that's being operated so you hired someone there yeah or uh, actually an australian came came along with me and did it duncan hewitt um but yeah the sound mix is done here the scores you know recorded here we're using you know the best australian editors in post-production the music is done by georgia field so an independent melbourne artist who i've kind of had a long-standing collaboration with and it's so beautiful it is and it's very noticeable it's, in the it, right way. I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's stunning. I, You know, when, you know, obviously, you know, when you make a film, it's a kind of long process and you, you sort of hear what the music's going to sound like in a kind of tinny, uh, midi, kind of computerised version. And even at that stage, I, I was very impressed by how beautiful and how um, emotive it, it was and how it how there were, you know, little sort of motifs for each character and motifs for sort of the passing of time and the entry of the season in New York and um, and then when the strings were actually recorded live I was you know I just fell about laughing and crying it was just a really really blissful um, moment to sort of see all that come together yeah that's it was really nice it's very good and the other thing about it is of course the characters themselves really you, you, uh, how you've decided to actually interleave them 
Oh yeah, so so like you you spend a bit of time with one character and then we we cut and we move to another character. That was very very difficult actually, and I you know and I take my hat off to to um, Cindy and and to Peter in terms of the editing of the film. Um, I sort of knew what I wanted the scenes to be, but finding the right duration for each scene and finding the right kind of remark to move from one character to the next was quite difficult. So just, I guess, finding the point upon which to pivot. Um, yeah, so so certainly that was a an editor's task, and it was a it was a long edit for a documentary. It took quite a while. Hello. Oh God. Um, that's a good question. I would say it was certainly more than ten weeks. I think it was more like twenty. Yeah, yeah which so is a long time for so, a doc. So you uh, did you use um, themes, thematics, or did you lie in bed like this one person I spoke to? She said she'd lie in bed and then she'd jump up and put things on stick stick pads uh, notes and stick them on a wall um yeah sometimes i mean i would come in come in with the the five minutes before midnight you know brainwave and say let's try this um but other times you know we we worked through it quite methodically um there's two producers on the film adam farrington williams and lizette atkins and they um when it was kind of clear that it was going to be quite a thorough edit we sort of went back to basics and we pulled the film apart and we sort of edited each character's storyline in some semblance of an order and that assisted us in understanding how to pivot between the two. Something that I, I had difficulty with is that I didn't like the idea of the scenes being out of chronological order. I thought if I was selling this idea that it was a year in the life of the building, um, I had a problem with, with things being moved around too much. Um, but there are a few instances where I just simply had to let it go because it made better sense to, to move things slightly earlier or later. Um, so, you know, there's a scene in the film where Dudley Williams goes back to his, um, the, the housing project that he grew up in in Harlem. Uh, and that scene happened much later in the shoot, but it made sense when characters were talking about his upbringing that, so, it, that, yeah. that, it, would be, that it would move forward. So yeah. some of it's to do more, I guess, with story logic than, than kind of a chronological ordering of events. One of the things that I found really interesting about the characters themselves is that they're individuals. They're not family people, they're individuals, Yeah, which so, I found really interesting. Well, Ilsa and Dudley both identify as, as you know, gay and lesbian, uh, and Edith is now a widow, uh, and none of them had children. Uh, so I guess it's also, I think t- when we tend to see older people on screen, they tend to be somebody's grandparent. And yeah, that's right. And there tends to be a sort of attachment, whereas... Here are three people who don't have those sorts of familial attachments and here they are here they are still, you know, making art and pursuing their dreams at you know, in, in the twilight of their lives. It's fantastic. That it is really fantastic. It's like uh <laughs> Elsa she says that I, I like to do this because it makes me feel like I can do it. Yeah. That I'm active and that I'm useful. And yeah, she, she she so she narrates the film, and she was keen on that. She loves challenges. I mean, I, I I'm somebody at 35 who thinks, oh, maybe that's going to be a bit hard. And he, <laughs> here I have an 81 year old on my hands saying, yes, let's try it. In fact, let's try it this way, and let's use a megaphone. I think um, you know the film opens with her on the roof of of Westbeth with a megaphone, sort of shouting to the rest of New York. That's right. <laughs> um, and. She was very, very game, and 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 I think new experiences are partially what keeps us young or young at heart, and that's some, something that I've certainly learned from from spending time with these three people. So you learned a lot. Your friends, absolutely, yeah. I, I, you know, you you 
uh, Anna Bronowski, the documentary filmmaker who made Forbidden Lies. That's right. Um, she said, you know, she she wouldn't want to make a film where she couldn't have a bottle of wine with the person a year later or a day later, or what, I can't remember what the exact quote was, but that's a, it's a really great analogy. You know, I'm back, I've been back to New York since because the film screened at a, a big film festival there and. How'd um, it go? It was great. Yeah, we had some sellout sessions. Um, it, it was at Doc NYC, which is like the the largest documentary festival in America, and it got the special jury um, mention uh, in 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 the area that it was in, and that was really great. You know, 155 features were screened, and here's this little Aussie kind of battler feature. So that was that was really nice. But they also loved the idea of you know kind of sharing it. Elsa and, and Edith were able to attend and. Yeah, so that was that was great. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's going to be on at Nova. Absolutely. So there's a, a couple of sessions coming up at Cinema Nova. I know that there's uh, one where you can already buy tickets, and that's Tuesday the 7th at 6.45 p.m., and it's a Q&A session. So if people want to come along, they can ask questions afterwards. Um, and we're hoping to announce a few more sessions after that, but there's there's nothing as yet. And it's screening around the country. So on Feb 8, that opens at nine screens around the country, which is very exciting. Yeah. Good on you, Rowan. <laughs> yeah. You know, my mum has a scrapbook, and it's certainly going in the scrapbook. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for Showreel today. Our conversation with director, filmmaker Rowan Spong, Winter at Westbeth. Now, Winter at Westbeth is a fantastic exploration into art and age, really. Artists who grow old but don't give up the pen or the dance or the film. They are fantastic characters. And uh, the whole idea of having stable public housing, what a great idea. You'll hear from me next week.
to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.